1 Corinthians chapter 14. Once again from Henry Drummond's little booklet, The Greatest Thing in the World. He wrote, To love abundantly is to live abundantly. And to live forever is to love forever. Eternal life also is to know God, and God is love. This is Christ's own definition. Ponder it. No worse fate can befall a man in this world than to live and grow old alone, unloving and unloved. To be lost is to live in an unregenerate condition, loveless and unloved. And to be saved is to love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth already in God, for God is love. And Paul begins 1 Corinthians 14 saying, Pursue love, yet earnestly desire spiritual gifts. Father, tonight we pursue love and desire earnestly the spirituals. And we ask your Spirit now to speak to us and to teach us and to help us to understand these things. In Jesus' name, Amen. There we go. Pursue love, yet desire earnestly pneumatikos. Spiritual gifts, spiritual things, things of the Spirit. The problem at Corinth was not with their earnest desire for the pneumatikos. Earnest desire is also translated zealousness. That was not the issue at Corinth. The issue was that their earnest desire did not follow in the pursuit of love. And Paul elevates that. Pursue love. Follow hard after love. And earnestly desire the things of the Spirit. You know, we may not understand all there is to know about every gift, every ministry, every effect of the Spirit. We may not fully appreciate how they operate, how they function. Especially until we begin to exercise them properly, we might not fully comprehend what the deal is. But inexperience does not invalidate these spiritual things. The lack of knowing doesn't change that they are available and existent. Nor does misuse or abuse delegitimize the spiritual things. The things of the Spirit. These, these gifts, ministries, again, these effects. And the key, as Paul says, to moving in the operations, with the operations of the Spirit of God, is love. That we pursue love. We seek to love. We chase after love and, Paul says, earnestly desire the spiritual things. And if we do it in that right order, then we will find the right place of these operations of the Spirit in the body. If it's for the purpose of love. If it's about one another. Now, as as we continue in this intriguing study, at least it's intriguing to me, I hope it is to you, but this intriguing study of the spiritual things... Where Paul begins to answer that question of the Corinthian church in chapter 12 and then 13, basking the whole thing in love, and now on into 14. Some might be tempted to say this is limited to Corinth of the first century. This teaching, 
And all that he has to say, all that's contained here is, is a Corinthian cultural issue. And these things, even these operations, I, I, I told you before, I was brought up to believe even these operations of the Spirit were a thing of the first century. That they aren't for now. And as we'll talk about probably on Sunday, it's interesting to me how our culture has so impacted even our view in the church today of the book of 1 Corinthians. But I want to remind you of Paul's greeting before we go any further. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, he said, To the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. So it seems to me that all in every place who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ would include us here tonight in the Bridge Christian Fellowship. If, if in fact, we call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This letter is not simply written to Corinth, but is written to you and to me. And its application is as legitimate today as it was 2,000 years ago. Now down in verse 37 of 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says, If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. He doesn't say the things I write to you are, you know, indigenous to Corinth. An issue for Corinth. A cultural problem we just need to clear up. He couches this entire teaching in the Lord's commandment. So I believe what we take out of 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, indeed the whole letter, but especially this section, are not just good ideas, suggestions, Pauline theology, but they are the word of the Lord. They are the commandment of God. I think we can say with great assurance this is relevant and pertinent to us in the church today. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 14 can be divided into two parts. That's how we're going to take it. The first part we'll spend the most time on, and it is coherent communication. Verses 1 through 25, Paul is going to deal with coherent communication. The second part picks up in verse 26 and runs to the end of the chapter, and we might call that orderly operation. Coherent communication and orderly operation. But get this, the entire point throughout this chapter is edification. Edification is at issue here. Not tongues, not prophecy, not the role of women. Although those tend to be the things we get a little hung up on. The issue is edification. Even over and above spiritual gifts and ministries and operations. Edification. That's the point. That's what Paul has been teaching. That's his big concern for Corinth and a concern that I think we could share with him for the church today. The building up of the body in love. Edification. That's what we're studying tonight. Don't forget that. Now there are all manner of particulars here and some wonderful explanations of the operation of the Spirit. How He works. How He moves. How we can interact with Him. And it's very clear It's wonderful, but it is for the building up of the body. Edification. Verse 1. Pursue love and yet desire earnestly spiritual things. But especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. 
For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification, exhortation, and consolation. Paul begins now to highlight prophecy as a greater gift. Prophecy over and above tongues. The church at Corinth obviously loved tongues. They loved the idea of prayer languages, of praying in the Spirit, of praying with tongues. And we'll talk about that, but Paul goes right to the heart of the greater gift, prophecy, the prophetia, which is divine declaration and it is inspired utterance of the words of God. And don't forget... This is an operation of the Spirit. Prophecy is. In fact, it's the very basis for the Bible you hold in your lap. If not for the prophetia, we would not have the Bible. For, as Peter writes, 2 Peter 1.20, know this first of all, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The Bible is the book of prophecy. It is the prophetia. And if, as the Bible tells us, God magnifies His Word above all His name... Well then, prophecy is an important gift, ministry, and operation. Remember, as we talked about last week, it's listed in all three places. Here in 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 14, in Romans 12, in Ephesians 4, in all the places talking about these gifts, ministries, and operations of the Spirit, prophecy is listed in all three. It is extremely significant. And while... Prophecy, and get this, prophecy and in terms of the prophetic word is still in effect for the church today. We need to understand that no prophecy divinely inspired will ever contradict, undermine, or rewrite Scripture. So if someone brings a prophetic word, it's going to be absolutely in line with Scripture. It will never contradict. It will never go against because Scripture is the word of God and he doesn't contradict himself. So any prophecy that someone might bring or claim that is a prophecy of the Word, first thing you do is test it against the Word. Now, I I didn't plan this, but sharing with you about the Spirit and the Bride say come, and the call that I believe God is putting on us as a fellowship to be the 70 sent out, you could take as a prophetic word. And it's legitimate because it aligns with the evangelistic call we all have given to us in Scripture. It follows even the pattern of Jesus Christ. His version of advertising is the sending of the 70. The sending of people to reach people, to draw people. That could very well be, I'm not claiming I'm a prophet. I'm just saying that could very well have been a prophetic word for our fellowship tonight. It's significant, but it also aligns beautifully with Scripture. And so when people talk about things like the gift of prophecy, the ministry of prophecy, oh, that guy's a prophet, or he brought a prophetic word, or she was speaking prophetically with her head covered. If you're talking about these things, you don't have to worry or be nervous. All you do is get out your Bible and go, well, is it legit? Can I verify it? We don't have to fear the operations of the Spirit because He has shown us how they work. And he's declared to us the truth in his word. We already have it. So, what's the use then today of prophecy? Paul tells us in verse 3, three things. Edification, 
That is the building up of the body of Christ. Prophecy also serves as exhortation. Exhortation, some translations say encouragement, but it's more than that. It's motivational encouragement. It's an encouragement that that urges, that, that pushes forward. It's not just, oh, you know, Trent, that's a nice tie you've got on back there. It's, Trent, wear that tie to the next time you go talk to some lost friend. <laughs> it's an urging. Okay? It's urgent encouragement, exhortation. And then thirdly, consolation, which is comfort. There are times when the word of prophecy brings incredible comfort to us. Prophecy is different than preaching or teaching. While preaching and teaching may both be uh, inspirational, may both be motivational, what prophecy does is it strikes a chord in the heart in a different way. It hits our hearts in such a way that it evokes a response to God. Prophecy calls forth a response. You know, a reaction. It makes us desire to move out and do something in response to what we've heard. Now, some of what you hear tonight, you're going to go, oh, that's interesting. Other things you hear tonight will confirm what you believe and you go, yes, that, that feels right. Some other things you hear tonight may challenge what you have believed. Prophecy is the thing that you hear that sends you out the door changed, called, motivated to do more than just go home after a nice Bible study. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12, referring to the Word of God, which again is a word of prophecy, says the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. It gets in. And that's what prophecy does. It gets in. It divides out, it it clarifies, it surgically works on us. And again, this is the prophetic word. And as we've seen, prophecy then is given both in the Bible, the word of God, and in the prophetic word in a church fellowship, it is given to strengthen, to convict, and to comfort, to edify, to exhort, and to console in a way that goes way beyond preaching and teaching. It is the language of edification. Now speaking of language, what about tongues? Verse 4. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but more that you would prophesy. And greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets, so that the church may receive Edifying. A couple of things to note about tongues and Paul's use of the word glossa in the Greek. What's he talking about? What's he getting at here? Okay, a a few things. Number one, understand this. Tongues are not for man. Tongues are not for man or woman in that they are spoken to God. When you hear about speaking in tongues, praying in the Spirit, prayer languages, what Paul is going to describe at length as he goes through this chapter, he is talking about something that is absolutely and always Godward, not manward. Tongues are not for man. They are for God. They are Godward. Look back at verse 2 again and let's understand clearly Paul is talking about something unique here. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, 
but to God. Is that clear? For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. We're talking about something spoken that is it's not intelligible even to the speaker. It's a mystery to him, to her. This idea of prayer language. You don't know exactly what it is that is being spoken. I know that sounds weird. Just stay with me through the end of the chapter, and if you still want to throw something at me, oh, wait till Sunday. <laughs> what does it mean that, that one who speaks a tongue does not speak to men but to God, and no one understands? Tongues are always a language of prayer and praise. Tongues are always for the purpose of worship. They are not prophecy. They are not preaching. And any sound interpretation of a tongue should reflect that. In other words, if someone is speaking in a tongue and another person interprets that speaking in the tongue, the interpretation will always be Godward. It will always be a moment of praise, a moment of worship, a direction of thanksgiving to God the Father. It will never be, thus saith the Lord. Everyone sitting in the fourth row. God has a word for you. And I'm interpreting now what my tongue-speaking friend is. No, that, that won't be accurate. And you can immediately know uh, that's not an accurate interpretation. If someone is truly speaking in a prayer language, speaking in a tongue, it's going to be Godward. How do you know? Well, we go back to Acts chapter 2 and we do get a picture there. Acts chapter 2, verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was getting, giving them utterance. Now we know in Acts chapter 2, differently than 1 Corinthians 14, that the tongues they were speaking were languages, earthly languages, understood by all the people gathered there. And yet, as the Bible says, it was as the Spirit was giving them utterance. So there was a profound Holy Spirit moment happening where He is pouring out the ability to speak in all of these languages upon the disciples, whether it was the 12 or the entire 120, I'm not sure. But what's really the miracle here is that everyone understood and it wasn't just a cacophony of noise. The Spirit was orchestrating the symphony. And everybody heard what was being spoken and understood that it was being spoken in their language. What was being spoken? Acts chapter 2 verse 11, the people said, we hear them in our tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. The interpretation, the understanding of what was being spoken was Godward. It was all about praise and glory and honor to God. And if someone is legitimately speaking in a tongue, in a prayer language, and it's interpreted, then that's what's going to happen. They heard praise and worship. They heard Godward, God-directed testimony. And of course, in that case, in that situation, the tongues were human. What I love about the story at Pentecost is that it was worship that attracted people. That's what they were doing. They didn't gather together and say, we got to do an evangelistic campaign. And here's the strategy, and here's how we're going to get some attention. They were worshiping God. And in worshiping God and praising God, people began to be attracted to it, drawn to it, in a symphonic, beautiful speaking of the glory of God. Tongues 
are a Godward operation of the Spirit. So understand that. Tongues are not for man. They are directed toward God. Secondly, tongues are not forbidden. They're not for man. They're also not forbidden. You see, while correcting their misuse, Paul does not prohibit the use of them, nor does he dismiss tongues as irrelevant, nor does he here or anywhere else in Scripture say, oh, and by the way, this is just for now. See, one of the things that I was taught is if you skip down and look at verse 22, Paul writes, so then tongues are for a sign not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. And that verse was pulled out of 1 Corinthians 14, married with what happened at Pentecost where all the languages spoken there were understood by all those gathered there and used in in my upbringing, my theology, to say that all tongues was about was speaking a foreign language so that the gospel could be spread. If that's the case, then again, why does Paul say one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God? If it's for the spread of the gospel, then wouldn't it be speaking to men? Wouldn't that be the point? And furthermore, no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. So neither the hearers nor the speaker understand what's being spoken. This is not for the spread of the gospel. This is something else. Again, if I'm just sticking to the word of God, this is an operation of the spirit that is not the speaking of the gospel for the spread of the gospel to be ceasing at the end of the first century which again is what I was taught, and I disagree with now. Tongues are not forbidden. Look at verse 4. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. Now, Paul doesn't say it's a bad thing to edify yourself. He doesn't immediately follow that with, tongues are for one to edify themselves, selfish jerks. You know, how could they? Oh, sure, self-edification. You put, That's what you need. Like you dog lovers, you need the affection of a dog. You know, that's what cat people say, by the way. They say, oh yeah, you need the affection of a dog. I like a cat because they make you work for their affection. No, cats are just snobs. I mean, let's be honest. And I don't even know what that had to do with anything. It had to do... (laughs) I really don't know what that had to do with anything. I don't know. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. Self-edification. Not a bad thing. I mean, is is it wrong for you to turn on Christian radio in the car as you're driving down the road to be encouraged? Is that a bad thing? No, it's a good thing. Edifying the body's better. Because, see, when I seek to edify the body, guess what happens? The body gets edified and I get edified right along with them. When I seek to only edify myself, then there's just one of us getting edified in that moment, and it's me. But it's not a bad thing. There is no negative connected to this. What Paul does do is down in verse 39, he says, Therefore, my brother, brethren, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid to speak in tongues. You see, we have a prescription in Scripture here that says, Don't forbid it. Don't reject it. Don't refuse it. Refuse what? Praying in the Spirit, as Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 14. Paul's saying it's okay. It is a useful operation. Don't forbid it. But all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. So what Paul's dealing with at Corinth is the issue of unbridled tongues. Tongues out of control. 
An overall lack of order in the Corinthian assembly, and you'll see that very clearly before we're done tonight. We put bridles and bits into the mouths of horses. I think it's a little cruel, but we do it. You know, we stick that metal thing in their mouth, and then we pull on it, and whichever way we pull, the horse is going to go. Well, wouldn't you? And I'm not suggesting you try this on your kids, but... James chapter 1 verse 26, he writes, If anyone thinks himself to be religious, yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. And I think that can go for prayer language as well as just tongue wagging. If you can't control your tongue, you're messing up your faith. You control your tongue, your tongue does not control you. Right? I don't have to say anything. Oftentimes we'll blurt things out and go, I just couldn't help myself. Yeah, you could. You just didn't want to help yourself. That's the real issue. This goes for intelligible as well as unintelligible language. You control it. You control your tongue. Speaking with uncontrolled, ecstatic utterances is nowhere to be found in Scripture. There is not an example of someone just coming under the power of the Spirit such that they cannot help themselves and must begin to speak in a tongue. You know what is found in Scripture? Malicious gossip, uncontrolled slander, the use and abuse of the tongue with intelligible language that probably causes more division in the church than prayer languages ever did. And these are in my book uncontrolled tongues that are more divisive. James says in James chapter 3 verse 8, no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father. Because remember, tongues are Godward. And with it we curse men who have cut us off as we're heading into Oak Harbor. We curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. So understand very simply that the spiritual operation of speaking in a tongue both blesses God and edifies the individual. So you would see why it's listed as one of the operations of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12. And now repeated again in 1 Corinthians 14. But keep in mind, though it is self-edifying, the point of koinonia is building up the body, not just the member. Because again, as the church, as the body is built up, so is the individual, but not necessarily the other way around. Paul makes no accusation against prayer languages. As a matter of fact, he repeats this. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18. He says, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. Pray in the Spirit. Well, how do you know praying in the Spirit is is praying in tongues? Well, he's going to say so just a little further down. Pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in you, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for the saints. Paul describes two kinds of prayer there. Both praying in the Spirit and praying with petition. Both unintelligible prayer in in the Spirit, but also intelligible prayer, petitioning God and praying for and calling out on behalf of the saints. And Paul says both are tools in the toolbox of prayer. 
Both can be utilized by followers of Jesus Christ. Jude chapter 20. Jude writes, You beloved, building yourself up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. So I'm here to tell you tonight that what I was taught was illegitimate is truly biblically legitimate, and that is the concept of praying in a tongue. And we'll get a little more clarity on this as we go. But Paul elevates prophecy and even interpretation above tongues because they benefit the entire body, and again, that is his concern. And it should be ours as well. Some might say, okay, but i got a problem with this, Rick, because I know in 1 Corinthians 12.30 that Paul already says, all do not speak in tongues, do they? And I, I was sharing this with, I think it's with our, with our whole staff, it may have just been with one or two earlier today, but when we look at 1 Corinthians 12 as a list of spiritual gifts, and then we put tongues in there as one of the gifts, And then we say at the end, and all do not speak in tongues, do they? We get a wrong understanding of prayer language. It kind of sounds like God gives it to some, but not to others. It sounds like God offers this this very intimate, quieting experience to some as a gift. You get this gift, and you can have this gift, and you you can't have it. She can't, no. And and he, he doesn't get it, but you can have it. When we understand 1 Corinthians 12 is talking about operations, well, that's a different thing. It's not a gift, it's an available operation. Again, a tool in the toolbox. And I would suggest to you, and you can disagree with me, and that's okay, we can go on being family. I would suggest to you it is a tool that is available to anyone who wants it. don't have to take it, but you can. It is available to you. Verse 5, Paul says, I wish that you all spoke in tongues. But even more that you would prophesy. And then of course he says, greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues. And he's not taking, he's not saying greater in terms of significance or elevation. He's just saying that prophecy is is a more significant gift. Prophecy is a more important thing because it edifies the body. As opposed to tongues edifying the self. So Paul, what are you saying here? I believe Paul is encouraging private usage of prayer language. But in chapter 12, verse 30, where he says, all do not speak with tongues, do they? And later in this chapter, he puts very clear limitations on public usage. That is, of prayer languages. One more thing on this, let me remind you. Praying in the Spirit is not evidence of salvation. It is also not evidence of a greater spirituality. This person who can speak in a prayer language is just more spiritual. I disagree. I've known some tremendously spiritual, mature believers who don't have or don't speak in a prayer language at all. They've tried. It's just never kind of worked out for them, never been their thing, and so they don't do it. Okay. And I really think that's more the attitude we ought to have toward tongues. 
Understand that any spiritual gift, any ministry, any operation that is used to elevate self over others denies the very nature of our calling. We are humbly called to be brothers and sisters united in Jesus Christ, not one above the other, but equal before the cross. And no gift changes that. Jesus said in Matthew 23, 12, whoever exalts himself should be humbled or shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. In Luke chapter 10, verse 19, at the return of the 70, remember I mentioned them, Jesus sent them all out. They did marvelous ministry. They proclaimed the kingdom. They cast out demons. They did great work. They all came back. They were excited. They were thrilled. And Jesus said, Luke chapter 10, verse 19, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Yes, cool, awesome spiritual stuff. And Jesus says, Nevertheless, (laughs) do not rejoice in this, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. That's worth rejoicing about. Let's go on. Paul now is going to give three analogies for coherent communication. And now he's explaining to the church at Corinth who love speaking in tongues all at the same time and drawing attention to themselves, apparently. He makes clear why prophecy is more important and how tongues can be abused. He goes on in verse 6 and says, But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues... What will it profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching? Yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in the tones, how will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? So the first analogy Paul gives is a haphazard harpist or a frenzied flautist. Someone, anyone, you know, Rachel's a harp, a harpist. I don't know if you know that. I think after years of having her dad harp on her, she decided she'd just learn the instrument, right? And she's really good. You could put Rachel's harp up on the stage and we could all take a crack at it, you know. But there's probably only one of us in here who can make it sound intelligible and beautiful, and that would be Rachel. The rest of us would be like, you know, kids playing a banjo. No sound. It doesn't make sense. It's not intelligible. And Paul says, you know, speaking in tongues is like that for the body. It's just noise. It it doesn't make sense. It's not helpful. It's not coherent communication. Or a, a frenzied flautist. Have you ever heard a flute played badly? Ask my mom. She directed elementary school orchestras for years. It's a horrific sound. How people can eventually get it to sound beautiful is remarkable. It's also like warm ups at a classical concert. Or maybe in a musical. You you know, you've probably been to something like that where you're sitting in the audience and you hear kind of that cacophony of noise coming out of the orchestra pit and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense until the conductor goes tap, 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 tap and everything gets silent and he raises the baton and the symphony begins. Paul says, if we're all just speaking in tongues, it's a cacophony and it's unintelligible. But it's not just about orchestration, it's also about <laughs> preparation. The second analogy, analogy he gives is a bungling bugler. Verse 8. For if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? And it's a great analogy. If someone comes rushing in here speaking in a tongue to warn us all of something, we're not going to have a clue what they're doing. We're just going to kind of sit and stare at them. 
a bundling bugler. It reminds me of Radar on MASH. If you've ever seen the old MASH episodes, one of my favorite uh, sitcoms of old, and, and Radar would play the trumpet to wake everybody up in the morning, and it was, again, horrific. You weren't even sure what that sound was blatting out of the trumpet. And Paul makes a great comparison in the bugler. If someone comes along and they're blowing a bugle badly, how are you going to know to prepare, to be ready? That's important as Christians because readiness is key. Jesus said again and again, be on the alert, Matthew 24, uh, 42. He said, you must be ready, Matthew 24, 44, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour when you do not think He will. And guess what's going to sound? The trumpet. And it will be perfectly played. And when we hear that last trumpet, the dead in Christ will rise. And we who are alive will be caught up with them in the air, in the clouds. We will meet Jesus in the air, and so we shall forever be with the Lord. We want an intelligible trumpet. But Paul says, problem with tongues in the assembly, it's not intelligible. So how can you be prepared, and how can you be orchestrated? Paul would say in 1 Thessalonians 5, 6, let us be alert and sober. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 8, be of sober spirit and be on the alert. Paul elevates the prophetic word because he says, man, intelligent, articulate language is vital to the building up of the body. It's vital to one encouraging another, and it's also vital to the preparation for the return of the king. Far too many Christians today are not prepared for Jesus' coming. They may be caught up in charismatic circles and enjoying the frenzy of the moment. They're not prepared for Jesus coming if they're not clearly hearing the Word of God articulated. And so Paul says prophecy is more important, more significant in the body. The last analogy he gives is that of a babbling barbarian. Verse 9. So also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking in the air. Uh, There are, perhaps, a great many kinds of languages in the world, and no kind is without meaning. You might underscore that. No kind is without meaning. So Paul's not saying that speaking in tongues or a prayer language is completely void of meaning. It's just void of meaning to us, because we don't know what's being said. But he says no language is without meaning. Verse 11 If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be the one who speaks a barbarian, a barbaros. It's that Greek word which comes from the the whole, it's a onomatopoeia, isn't that the the phrase? It's, It's a word that sounds like what the word means, and it means babbling, and the word in the Greek is barbar. Bar, 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 bar. Okay? And he's saying if someone speaks a language you don't understand, that's what it sounds like. Except French. When Valentine speaks French in our house, it's beautiful. Of course, you kind of have to have a sinus condition to do it right. But a language you don't understand just sounds like babbling. I will be the one who speaks a barbarian, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me, he says. Verse 12, So also you, since you are zealous of spirituals, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Zealous of spiritual things. (laughs) I like the translation. It's literally, since you are spirit zealous. And it's probably not a capital S. He says, since you Corinthians are spirit zealots, 
Go after the things that will edify and build up the body. It's not even the Spirit. You're not zealots of the Spirit. There's no definite article there. It's just Spirit zealots. Zeal for Spirit things was the Corinthian trademark. That's what's going on in this church. And Paul's concern is not the experience of the person, but the edification, again, of the body. That word edification, oikodome in the Greek, is used six times in this chapter alone, more than in any other chapter in the New Testament. The word oikodome is exclusive to Paul with one exception, and that is Luke uses it in the book of Acts one time. The rest of the time you see it scattered throughout Paul's letters, but more here than anywhere else. In 1 Corinthians 14, over and over, oikodome, oikodome, edification, edification, edification. Six times, which again is interesting because six is the number of a man, and we need edifying. And the church needs building up. So it is the operative word in the letter and in this chapter. Back in 1 Corinthians 8.1, Paul said, Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies, builds up. 1 Corinthians 10.23, Paul says, Hey, all things are lawful, but not all things edify. And what Paul is trying to do is rope in this rather scattered, messy Corinthian church, rope them into edification. Redirect them to be more concerned with strengthening, building up, and loving the body of Christ than their own personal religious experience. And we would do well to pay attention to that because in the church today, oftentimes we put more emphasis on my personal experience than on our edification. Paul would say we have it upside down. Love each other so as to build each other and strengthen each other, and encourage each other, and comfort each other. Here Paul says through coherent communication, verse 13, Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. Again, not forbidding, just saying if you're going to speak in a tongue, ask God to reveal to you what it is. Give you the ability to interpret it, to to speak it. I need to remind you, he's talking about the public assembly. In fact, since chapter 11, we've been in church. Chapter 11, 12, 13, and 14, this is all about order in the church. And Paul is describing that, dealing with communion in chapter 11. And then again, dealing with the operations of the Spirit, chapter 12, love, chapter 13. And here in chapter 14, how things are done in an orderly manner in the church. So he says in the church, and he'll make this even more clear later, interpretation is mandatory. If there's not an interpretation, don't speak in tongues. You just don't do it. Unless there's one there gifted to interpret. If there's not interpretation, stay silent or talk quietly to God yourself. Verse 14. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? Verse 15. I will pray with the Spirit. And I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the Spirit. I will sing with the mind also. Do you get what he's saying here? Now, again, he's organizing. He's talking about coherency and intelligent conversation in the assembled church. 
But he's just given wonderful insight into what this whole prayer language thing is all about. What speaking in tongues is truly all about. He says, when I pray with the Spirit, my mind is unfruitful. But he says, I will pray with the Spirit and I will pray with my mind. So he's talking about two things. And it's an interesting and telling description of tongues. Let me ask you this question. Is there ever a time when it's good for the mind to be unfruitful? I would suggest to you that it is. Especially in those times when my mind won't stop being fruity. (laughs) And I deal with this. In fact, it was years ago, before I ever started to even consider tongues, praying in the Spirit, I would turn on movies and watch TV just to quiet my brain. I'm one of those, and perhaps some of you are as well. I never stop thinking. I I just, I don't, I mean, it's just like constant. It's it's erratic, and Trent, I know you understand what I'm talking about. That's the second time I've picked on you tonight, isn't it? I can't stop. I've told the story before of Cheryl and I driving down the road, and I'm just, my mind is just buzzing. A hundred miles an hour, and I've got all kinds of thoughts, and, and I, you know, Cheryl loves this. I'll say to her, what are your goals for the next 10 years? Because I already know mine. Fruit, 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 you know? And driving along, I'll say, Cheryl, what are you thinking right now? Because it's got to be something, you know? And she goes, nothing. <laughs> How is that possible? I hope I'm not. Am I embarrassing you with this story? Should I not tell this one? Ah, whatever. Okay. <laughs> what? No. And I pinned her down. What are you thinking right now? And she goes, Nothing. I said, that's not possible. How can you not be thinking anything? And then I grabbed the wheel again because we started to swerve. <laughs> what are you thinking? And she said, you want to know what I was thinking right in this moment? Yes, please tell me. I was thinking, hey, look at that barn over there. <laughs> what a blessing that must be to be able to just relax the mind. I can't do it. So I'll watch movies. I'll read a good book so I can engage my mind in one focus, one direction. Is there ever a time when it would be nice for the mind to be unfruitful? Yes, there is. I would even suggest to you that perhaps prayer languages are more for people who really need it because they can't stop their brains from rolling. Sometimes the constancy of thought is what gets in the way of even our listening to God. I can't hear because I keep talking. Well, how about silent prayer? That's worse. I, I Silent prayer, forget it. Because I'm like one sentence into silent prayer and I'm off on some scheduling thing. I'm in my mind somewhere else. I can't do it. I have to pray out loud or, or in the Spirit. Because it quiets the mind. It's a wonderful, personally edifying value. And that is in praying in the Spirit, the mind, Paul says, is unfruitful. Praying in the Spirit, somehow it quiets the mind that might otherwise be busy and overproductive and super fruitful. And I think it's what Paul was alluding to in Romans chapter 8, verse 26. He said, The Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Might that be tongues? 
And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So he is Jesus searching hearts, interceding for the Spirit, the Spirit interacting with you to help us pray as we should. And by the way, in verse 15, where Paul says, I will pray with the Spirit and I will pray with the mind. I will sing with the Spirit and I will sing with the mind. It's unclear if praying with the Spirit, if Spirit is upper or lower case. It could go either way. Paul may be saying, I'll pray with my Spirit. Or he may be saying, I pray in the Spirit. And I think it's both. Because the Spirit interacts in prayer language. Just as He did at Pentecost, the Spirit was the one giving them utterance. Doesn't mean they were out of control, but it means He was the one who was providing the utterance, giving them the ability, the understand—you know, not even the understanding, but the ability to speak and to pray in such a way. Praying with the Spirit is an operation of the Spirit, And He's the one who intercedes with groanings too deep for words. The Spirit coming alongside my Spirit. Isn't that exactly how the Holy Spirit functions? And note this. The Holy Spirit does not commandeer the vehicle of your Spirit. He doesn't force His way into the driver's seat. He comes alongside you. He is the paraclete. As Jesus described Him in John 14, 26... The Helper, the Comforter, the Paraclete, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He'll teach you all things. And He will bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. By the way, praying in the Spirit does that too. It quiets the mind to remember Jesus. It stills the mind to hear God. And to then recall the things that Jesus wants you to recall. But it takes time it's not something we just do on the fly in fact I would say that about all prayer people who say I don't know why I don't hear God my first question is how busy are you when was the last time you gave God four hours to listen well who's got four hours exactly that's the problem and that's why we don't hear gotta be quiet to hear Jesus said and note this is interesting he said I'm going to send the parakletos, the the helper, to you. And he's going to bring these things to remembrance. What was the very next thing Jesus said? Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. I'm going to give you the parakletos and peace. Because the Spirit brings peace. He brings a peace that surpasses comprehension. Could you use a little peace? In your times of prayer, could you use a little peace of mind? Are there times when you don't know how to pray or what to pray or when your thoughts or your words are a noisy basket of fruit? Paul says, when I pray in the Spirit, my mind is unfruitful. Now, you may be sitting there listening to this going, I don't buy any of this, Pastor. Okay, I understand. I didn't either. I'm just telling you what he's saying. We're just reading what Paul wrote in the Word of God, followed by these are the commands of God. So you've got to deal with God on that. I'm, I'm not here to convince anybody of a position other than that we take the position of Scripture. 
And it's pretty clear to me what Paul is saying here. I will pray with the Spirit and I will pray with the mind also. Both. Both are necessary. I will sing with the Spirit and I will sing with the mind also. Psalm 46.10 God says, Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And praying in the Spirit can be a quieting tool of worship because it's always Godward and listening in the quiet to hear God. Not the clamor that I have witnessed in some charismatic circles. And that's the other side of this. When we talk about the misuse of praying in tongues or prayer, praying in the Spirit, I've seen and experienced times where people were all just, it was a cacophony of noise. And that's not how the Spirit seems to work biblically. There's peace. You can hear a pin drop, like right now. And again, back in verse 2, he says, For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one, who under, for no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. Now, someone might say, okay, let's say this is true. What if you inadvertently, in a, in a prayer language or something, what if you inadvertently speak a blasphemy? Paul's already addressed that, hasn't he? 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So you don't have to worry about that. Paul sets the whole thing up ahead of time saying, look, if you, if you are truly in the Spirit, you don't have to worry about doing the wrong thing or cursing Jesus or saying something. that Don't worry about it. Set your heart on Jesus. And that's a comforting thought. Verse 15, one more time, let me read it again. I will pray with the Spirit, I will pray with the mind. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the mind also. And Paul describes this in a couple of other places. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, he says, Don't get drunk with wine, for that's dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Notice, that's Godward singing. And Paul references here something that he doesn't talk about anywhere else except Ephesians and Colossians, and that is singing in the Spirit. What's that all about? Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell richly within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Again, that is God word. So let me ask you this. When the worship team is leading, do you ever find yourself singing along without words? You ever find that you just almost can't help it, you just want to keep singing. But there aren't any words on the screen, and far be it from us to make up words, so we just kind of sing along. Maybe none of the rest of you do that. I do it all the time. Try and do it quietly, because I don't want to make too joyful a noise. (laughs) But you find yourself maybe driving in the car, and a worship song comes on, you don't know the words, but you just want to sing. And you're starting to get perhaps the melody, but you begin to sing along and you're not really even necessarily noticing the words that you're singing. Perhaps you're singing in the Spirit. I find it interesting that Paul puts no restrictions whatsoever on singing in the Spirit, in the assembly. He mentions 
I will sing in the Spirit. And nowhere else does he say anything about, and by the way, don't sing in the Spirit unless you have an interpreter. He doesn't say that. And I think there are times when we are in worship together and people are singing along. My daughter Hannah does it all the time and she doesn't even know it. When she was out here visiting, I, I kept noticing all the nuances and things that she was adding to songs. And I'm like, that's kind of cool. Singing in the Spirit. The point is, you are adoring God. You are loving God. You are thanking God. You are focused on God. And Paul doesn't restrict that. What he does do is curb tongues in the assembly in favor of coherent communication. Verse 16. Otherwise, if you bless in the Spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the Amen at your giving of thanks? Since he does not know what you're saying. For if you're giving, for you are giving thanks well enough. Note that Paul legitimizes again praying in the Spirit. You're giving thanks. He doesn't question that. But the other person is not edified. I thank God. Paul says, "I speak in tongues." Oh, Paul was a Pentecostal. I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. And by the way, I get this picture of Paul in the long trip from Athens down to Corinth. Disappointed, beaten up, kicked out, not going well. The mission seems to be on the skids and he's just walking. And I would imagine he probably was praying in the Spirit much of that walk. I know that Paul prayed in tongues because Paul says, I pray with tongues more than you all. However, verse 19, in the church, that is in the assembly of the called, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. Tongues are for edifying the self. But when you gather... How much better to speak intelligible language that honors God, glorifies Him, and teaches the body? And how will the ungifted say the Amen? That is, how will their spirit know to say, Yes, Lord, if they don't even know what's being said? The Greek word for the ungifted, you might want to jot this down, is idiotis. It is. It's where we get our word, idiot. How will the idiot know to say the amen? But Paul doesn't use it the way we use it. It's not a slur. It is not an insult. It simply means the unlearned or the unskilled. And I believe what he's referring to here, and we will see this in a moment, is non-believers. They don't know. Non-believer comes in, they sit down, and all of a sudden people start speaking in tongues, and they don't have a clue what's going on. What is this? And how can they then agree? How can they then stand up and say, Yes, Lord, if they don't even know who's being addressed? Because they don't understand the tongue. Paul's point in saying this, again, is the exact opposite of how we would use the word idiot. He's saying, don't do something that could confuse or worse, devalue another person. The idiotus is not someone who's just a fool. There's someone who doesn't know, who doesn't have the understanding, or who is in the place of unbelief. By the way, there's historical evidence that the word idiotus was a technical pagan term used for non-members who still participated in pagan sacrifice. In other words, non-believers. 
who came to church in Greek culture who came to the pagan temple. They didn't believe, they didn't buy all that stuff, but they came. And Paul is drawing a connection here between the non-believer who walks in the door of a church, and by the way, there are more of them in America today than there have been in recent decades. More people who have never been to church. When I was a kid growing up, most people went to church. Whether or not they believed was, was debatable, but most people went. Church was kind of a thing still in culture back in that day, not anymore. And today, the, the likelihood that you know a number of non-believers is very high. And if they walk in the door of the church, listen, Paul has the gospel in view when he says, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the amen? Say yes to Jesus. You're all speaking in tongues. See, the danger of playing church is if we do what we do for ourselves. If our behavior in this sanctuary is simply for us, and it negates the opportunity for the non-believer to come to know Jesus, we're shooting ourselves in the foot. Indeed, we're shooting the gospel in the foot. How will the non-believer ever say, Yes, Lord. Verse 20, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet an evil be infants. Man, if you're going to be infantile, be infantile about evil things. You know, if you're going to not be aware of things, don't be aware of evil stuff. Great prescription. However, in your thinking, be mature. Spiritual maturity, my friends, is not defined by giftedness. And it is not defined by ministry appointments. And it is not defined by operational power. Spiritual maturity is defined by how well we love And so my first concern, let me ask you, is this your first concern? It's not always mine. When you walk in the door of the church, is your first concern somebody else? Is your first concern that one person walking in the door who looks like they're a little lost or out of place or unknown? That one person sitting by themselves all the way to the right of the pastor. Oh, it's my wife. That one person... Is your concern immediately other-centered or is it, boy, I hope the pastor's not boring this morning. I hope they do that one song. You know that song Rachel does? I love that song. I hope they do that song because that will make me... Where's our concern? Paul's concern is focused on the gospel and our spiritual maturity is how we love. Did Jesus pray in tongues? I don't know. I can't say that He didn't. But I can't say that he did. Why? Because the Bible doesn't tell us. But I can tell you this about Jesus. We sure know that he loved. There is no question of his concern for people. Of his compassion. Of his teaching. No question that he was here for us. And not for himself. That spiritual maturity. Well, verse 21 going on. In the law, it is written, By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me. And that's a critical verse because it explains the next verse to follow. Paul is now turning to concern for non-believers. And he does so by first quoting Isaiah 28, verse 11. Isaiah 28, 11, which reads, Indeed, he will speak to this people, that is, God will speak to Israel, through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. And it was a prophecy by Isaiah in about 7, 750 B.C. 
about the Israeli or Israelite captivity into Babylon that would happen in 586. So 200 years before it, Isaiah prophesied of the babbling Babylonians. And again, he said, he will speak to this people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. It's also referenced in Deuteronomy 28:49 by Moses. I believe referring also to Babylon, saying the Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as the eagle swoops down, and the eagle was a symbol of Babylon, a nation whose language you shall not understand. So he sets this up. Paul quotes these Old Testament passages, and what's the point of the quote? Listen, tongues don't bring the rebellious to obedience. Through Isaiah... I will speak to this people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. And the implication in that verse and in that passage is, and they're not going to listen. It will not bring them to repentance. It will not bring them to faith. Tongues won't do it. And that's the point that Paul is beginning to make. Babylonian babbling didn't cause Israel to repent. Neither will prayer languages that are heard by unbelievers, bring them to repentance. So Paul says in the assembly, it's not of value. Verse 22, then he says, so then, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. Prophecy is not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Now that second part is easy. Prophecy is for those who believe. Why? Because we hear it and we go, yes, this is the word of God. I believe. I accept this, Lord. Yes. And so prophecy speaks to and cuts to the heart and causes and creates belief. Tongues does not. Tongues does not bring belief. Tongues are a sign not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. Now again, context is everything here, and I I hope I don't lose you. I struggle with this one to explain it. But what Paul is saying is that tongues signify the unbeliever. That is, they signify that this person doesn't really know what's going on. Is not a believer. Is a non-believer. Because they hear it and they... They they don't understand it. As with Israel in Isaiah's days, tongues are a sign of unbelief. It indicates either those who don't believe at all, the non-believer, or it also could indicate those who are, 2 Timothy 3.5, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. It could reference those who just reject this whole concept of praying in the Spirit. They just don't believe it. Let me say this gently. I don't think you have to believe it. I think you just, if you just reject it outright, I don't think it's an issue of salvation. Which is why those who completely believe in cessationism, that tongues ceased with the last of the apostles, I can be a brother to them. I can love that person and accept and acknowledge them as a brother in Christ, a sister in Christ. So I don't think that this is a salvation issue. But it is a sign of those who do not believe, Paul says. Bottom line is this. More tongue speaking is not the answer. Listen to Paul explain even further in verse 23. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues, 
and ungifted men or unbelievers, will they not say that you are mad? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted enters, he's convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed and he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. Prophecy does that, tongues do not. And so Paul says, I would rather speak five words of prophecy than 10,000 in a tongue. I would rather that when you gather in the assembly, you do so in coherent communication. Now quickly, part two. Orderly operation, verse 26. What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Now stop there for a minute. I think the question mark's in the wrong place. And I can say that because there was no punctuation in the Greek. Okay, so this is something the translators put in there. And I think in the context, because Paul here is really going after the abuse of these things, and he is correct, corrective in the way he's teaching, I think the question mark ought to fall after the word interpretation. Okay, what do you mean, Rick? Rick? Some take this as Paul's prescription for how we should do church. I don't think so. I think it's Paul describing what was going on in Corinth. That is, what then, brethren, when you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Everybody's got something. You're all gathering together. You're like, my turn, my turn, my turn. And you're speaking, and now you're speaking, and now they're speaking over here. And everybody's got something, and you're just bringing it. And, And he says, guys, guys. Let all things be done for edification. Edification. I mean, this thing, this is the Corinthian chaos. And it's what he seems to be addressing. The problem is they are all in it for themselves. They are all about the self-edification. It's about getting a word in edgewise. I got a psalm. I got a teaching. I got a revelation. I got a tongue. I got an interpretation. And Paul slams on the brakes and says, Whoa! Let it be for edification. Let it build up the body, not divide it up because you're so scattered in your noise. Let all things be done for edification. When we gather, again, who is it that we are here to please? It is Jesus. It's not me. It's not ourselves. It is for Him. Romans 8.8, 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Colossians 1.10, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Verse 27, if anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three. And each in turn, and one must interpret. But if there's no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Keep silent. You know, holding your tongue may be more a sign of the Spirit than all the blabbering in the world. Silence is a spiritual thing. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 20, the Lord is in His holy temple and all the earth keeps silence 
before Him. Some of the most profound moments are found in silence and in quiet and in stillness. D.L. Moody. i got to give you a couple more things about him. He was at a gospel meeting, holding a gospel meeting, and an inspired young minister at the end of the meeting, after hearing Moody speak, was really jazzed and began to pray and pray and pray. He just went on and on and on in what was described as, quote, a great oratorical effort. He was just doing the closing prayer, but man, he was pumped up. And as he's praying on and on, finally Moody stood up on the platform and said, let us stand and sing a hymn while our brother finishes his prayer. (laughs) Isn't that the best? Jesus says, you suppose you're going to be heard for your many words? (laughs) Let all the earth keep silence before Him. Because when there's silence in the assembly, the Word of God can be articulated to be understood. And that is a potent and powerful thing. Verse 29, Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must become silent, or must keep silent. He's talking about orderly operation here. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And he adds, the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. Orderly operation. You are not out of control. As I said earlier, you control your tongue. Your tongue does not control you. And the spirit of the prophet controls the prophet. You don't go out of control and suddenly you're not like, you know, a geyser in Yellowstone Park. I couldn't help it. Just had to go off. It's not how it works. In another instance of Moody's preaching, quote, in the very midst of one discourse, at the height of its interest, two or three quickly succeeding shrieks came from the center of the audience. Moody stopped as if at a signal and said, we'll stand and sing Rock of Ages cleft for me and the ushers will please help that friend out of the hall. She's hysterical. And there were no more hysterical demonstrations during the evening and the congregation scarcely realized that there had been any interruption in the teaching at all. You see, Moody understood it was more important that people hear the word of God and the gospel proclaimed than that this one sister had an ecstatic experience. And so it was measured. Order in the church. Orderly operation of the Spirit of God. Verse 33, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. As in all the churches. This is not a Corinthian issue. This is an all-church issue. He is a God of order who will not interrupt Himself. Things are done orderly and in an orderly fashion. And that's the way God, God who created this planet... Who ordered creation, as Glenn reminded me at lunch today. The same God who made all things so orderly and so beautiful in their, in their organization. Is it any surprise that he would, he would say when you gather together in the assembly, I want it to be ordered. I don't want people jumping off the back of the chairs. I don't want things out of control and wild. I want it orderly. There's a bit of propriety that is called for here. And it's good and it's holy 
And it's right. And I'm going to save verses 34 through 38 for Sunday. Please join me. Please join me in praying that the rapture come before Sunday. Verse 39, Therefore, my brethren, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid to speak in tongues, but all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. And Sunday morning, Glenn, we may need that bulletproof pulpit. Let's pray together. (laughs) Father, we love You. And Lord, even though some of the teaching of Paul in this chapter may stretch us a bit or may cause us to rethink perhaps where we've come from or may, Father, I don't know, it may cause some just to dig in a little bit. Lord, what's clear to me is that You care for the body. And what's marvelous here is that You desire that we have peace. That we, that we have relationship with You. That we move and we function with Your Spirit. That that intimacy that You invite us to is marvelous, Lord. And, And I know that's Your heart for not only this fellowship, but for Your church. And so I pray, Father, again, as we continue to go through Your Word, that we're not going to skip anything, not even the verses 34 through 38. We will accept and deal with Your Word as Your Word. We just pray for wisdom and discernment. And we pray, Father, that the prophetic word would be spoken and heard, that our hearts might be convicted, and we might follow hard after love. In Jesus' name, Amen.